The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Hey friends, welcome. So happy to have you with us this afternoon on the Main Street Vegan Podcast. I am Victoria Moran and if you are brand new and don't know about all the things that I do, I wrote a book way back in 2012 called Main Street Vegan and oh my gosh, it's just spawned so many things. This uh, wonderful opportunity to talk with amazing people and to share with you among them. You can find out more about what goes on in the world of Main Street Vegan at MainStreetVegan.net. We'd love to see you over there and love even more that you're right here right now. After our first break, we'll be bringing on Robert Grillo with his new book, Farm to Fable the fictions of our animal-consuming culture. And right now, we're going to be talking about fiction, really good fiction, really page-turning, oh my gosh, don't call me and ask for anything until I finish (laughs) reading this book. And it is the debut novel of Bren McLean. Its title is One Good Mama Bone. Bren McLean set her novel back in the 1940s and early 50s in rural South Carolina, where she's from, and it's about a special relationship between two mothers, a woman named Sarah Kramer and the mother cow Mama Red, who comes to live on Sarah's farm. Welcome, Bren McLean. Oh, thank you, Victoria. I appreciate that so much. This is awesome. 
Well, it's absolutely wonderful to be talking with you because you can really write. Oh, my gosh. Oh, good. <laughs> the fact that you have turned this incredible non-human being into one of your fascinating characters, all of your characters are fascinating. So tell us, why, why did you choose a cow? Okay, let me say the cow chose me. I had written uh, a novel called Willie June, and it was no good, let me tell you right now. It was a story that celebrated motherhood, Victoria, but I just did not pull it off. So I put it up and did some research on another book. In the meantime, I visited my father's farm in South Carolina, and it was during what's known as a waning, when you take the mothers from the babies. And so this was on a Sunday afternoon. On that night, I went to sleep at 5 in the morning. Their guttural, primal, primitive sounds as they, the mothers called for the babies actually woke me up, drew me outside to this gathering of mama cows in this corner of this barbed wire fence. Oh, they were saying, just calling for their babies 30 yards up the way, the babies doing the same thing. And I've got to tell you, I just got chills up me in my bones as I took these sounds into my body. And I knew in front of me the missing piece of the failed novel that I had tried to write that celebrates motherhood. And I looked at this one mama cow in the deep corner whose eyes were cut at me as if, as if pleading, hey, bring my baby back. Mm-hmm. But I said to her, sweetie, I, I can't bring your babies back but I can tell your story. So I feel, Victoria, that cows chose me. And I made a promise to Mama Red right then and there that I'm, I was going to do it. And I'm thrilled to say that I've delivered on that promise. And you've delivered for this particular cow as well. You, you've given her sanctuary. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, we all know what happens to mama cows, right, when they reach a certain age. And by that, I mean when they no longer are reliably productive, they are sent, and that's actually what becomes our our hamburger. So my dad, being a traditional South Carolina cattleman, beef cattleman, was going to do that. And I said, no, no, no. And I said, I want to buy her from you and give her sanctuary. And so I wrote him a check for $1,000 that day and was able to keep my baby. And if you can believe this, she is 25 years old, still in my father's pasture, being given sanctuary. Wow. What, (laughs) What a powerful story. And I think this is so interesting, Bryn, that your dad is a beef farmer, but they still separate the moms and the babies. I think a lot of us are told that's what happens in dairy operations, at least in beef operations, the moms and the babies get to stay together. I guess that's not always the case. No, no. what standard is around the age of six to eight months, the babies are separated from the beef cattle, and I'll tell you why. It's because the mama cow typically is pregnant again. You see, Uh she needs that milk to sustain her own body for this baby that is inside of her. So definitely there's a weaning that takes place at that time among beef cattle. I see. How interesting. I guess with the dairy cattle, it happens almost immediately, and they just deal with being pregnant and making milk. Uh, 
Yes. Oh, what a mess, what a mess. This is I why know. we're vegan. Oh, I know. So, yay, yay. So <laughs> tell me, what kind of response did you get when you presented this book to a publisher? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? All right, so I'm a southern girl. You can hear from my accent, uh, South Carolina and Tennessee. So I tried to go the traditional route and get a New York publisher. Well, <laughs> looked at me sideways, et cetera, et cetera. I had this one literary agent that I met with one time to pitch the book, and she was, I thought, kind of interested in it, but then she said, eh, you know, I don't know about a cow that talks. I just think that's a little hokey. I said, no, I don't, I'm not writing about a cow that talks. And she said, no, I think maybe you are, and you just don't realize it. <laughs> what? And so, Victoria, I found in New York Publishing, um, so removed from farm life, rural farm life, just a real disconnect and a failure to die, dial in. And so I decided, you know, I need to search another route. And I was looking at some vegan publishers, and about that same time, a traditional publisher came along, a small press, actually um, a press that was founded by the amazing fiction writer Pat Conroy, who wrote Prince of Tides, etc., began his own publishing company to publish Southern writers that New York was passing over. Ooh. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's why One Good Mama Bone is out there. And i got to tell you, I'm really happy that a mainstream publisher published my book because, see, what's happening now is it's starting conversation in the mainstream. Because what I would really like to do is put cows on people's radars. You know, people say, oh, my gosh, I didn't know cows were like that. I didn't know cows had families. I didn't know cows cared for their babies like that. I just see them out in the field and happy, happy. I had no idea. And so I just love taking mainstream into, deeply into, uh, the world of cows and Helping, I'm hoping, I'll put it that way, hoping folks will connect the dots, you know, will connect the dots between what they're eating and what they're feeling for these cows. And, you know, I made Mama Red a real character. I, in fact, the owner of the Indraloka Animal Sanctuary in Mahoopany, Pennsylvania, Indra Lahiri, after reading the book, <laughs> she came to love the people almost as much as she did Mama Red. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, I think it's opening some eyes, starting some conversations. I, I really want to go and speak with book clubs and start a dialogue. Oh, that's a wonderful thing because there are so many people who love literature who have never even thought about what's on their plate, mm -hmm. who've never connected the the idea, the, the animals. It's wonderful that we're branching out, all of us as vegans and animal rights advocates, into these many other areas to reach people because anybody could read this book. I mean, the most diehard meat eater person who never thought about animals and really have a heart connection and, and make a change – and, and just have a wonderful literary experience, too. So you're building your brand now as an animal fiction writer. Is, <laughs> is this a genre that, that 
is in bookstores, <laughs> or no, are you just I, inventing it? I think if we were to walk in Barnes & Noble, etc., I don't think there would be that kind of thing. But, you know, I'm well aware that this is my thing, uh, an animal fiction writer. And so the question for me becomes, all right, so I'm working on my next book. Uh, am I going to put an animal in that novel? And so I told myself, Victoria, that I wasn't going to just, you know, just set one in for the sake of setting it in, but I was going to keep my heart open for something organic to grow, organic to grow out of it, because I believe we have a lot to learn from animals. I'm, I use Mama Red as, as a maternal teacher, if you will. So this next novel that I'm writing, guess, guess what animal showed up in that the other day? Uh, chicken. A ch- How did you know that? I'm not a sure. <laughs> a chicken, and I've called her Baby Plop Plop, and she's uh, blind in one eye and has kind of a crooked foot. And uh, my main character started talking about to the least of these. Mm-hmm. And so I can, okay, here we go. I can already see <laughs> something else growing. Uh, you know, and, and with that biblical quote, you know, I think about not a sparrow falls, but the yeah. father sees, and yet we eat birds. You know, yeah. people eat chickens. Oh, well, I'm so happy that, that you're doing what you do. So <laughs> do you have advice to anybody else who's thinking, gosh, there's a novel in me. Do I dare write it? Oh, yes, I certainly do. Mm-hmm. I I'm of the belief that... We have stories that only we can tell. And if we don't, then they pass us by. And so I would say that if you're listening and you have a story that is in you, that is burning, that it's yours and yours alone, I would urge you to put your butt in the chair on a routine (laughs) basis because that's exactly what it takes. It takes a habit. It takes a discipline. Put your butt in the chair on a routine basis, at a routine time, at a routine place every day and present yourself for it and bring it to us because we need your stories that are yours and yours alone. Beautifully, beautifully put. Now, where do you write? (laughs) All right. So I think I must have been a cat in another life because I write... Uh, beneath a stairwell, an enclosed stairwell in my home, pitch black. You know, I have to actually lower my head to go into it. And I love that, Victoria, because it reminds me of being subservient to the material, subservient to my characters as I present myself to them. So I lower my head round a little corner, and I actually write in a gutted 1800s organ, a small organ from the 1800s that's been gutted out. And so I write there in dark. What a beautiful writer's nook. (laughs) It is perfect. and, And I'm a cafe writer. I need to be out there in the world with all the noise and energy, but none of it has anything to do with me. <laughs> and I feel that I kind of take some of that energy and translate it into the work. What a fascinating thing. And and in this time when there's so much, quote, content around us and and available for free, Mm -hmm. I think that writers really have to fight for the fact that we are a verbal culture and we are a storytelling species. And to preserve this is so, so important. Here's what Kirkus Reviews had to say about One Good Mama Bone. 
McLean's first novel resists predictability and instead weaves together questions about poverty, class, violence, and religion, a thought-provoking story about families and the animals who sustain them. That just made the hairs on my arms stand up. <laughs> well, it made my eyes mist over, to be honest with you. That's a, I'm, a, I'm incredibly humbled uh, by what they said. I really am. And and that's not easy to get. That's pretty classy. You've also got some very kind words from Jean Bauer of Farm Sanctuary, <laughs> whom we all know and love. <laughs> yes, yes, so, yes. In in our last few minutes, what what do you want people to know about your book, about you, about cows? Talk mm-hmm. to us. I I think I'll 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 say uh, someone asked me the other day what they wanted me to take away from the book, or or what they wanted them to take away from the book, and of course. I write it, and it's up to each person. You know, you let it go. I feel as though my book now is a living, breathing being out there in the world. And Victoria, I think what I would really like, because it's the kind of writer I am, in fact, in that little writing nook that we had talked about, on the ceiling above me, which is slanted, I, in a Sharpie pen, black Sharpie pen, wrote these words, wake us up. And that's what I want to do as a writer. I want to wake people up. So in answering the question, what do I want readers to take away from this book? I want you to feel something. I want you to feel sad. I want you to laugh. I want you to feel uh, thrilled. I want you to feel excited. I want you to feel compassion. I want you to feel scared. I want you to feel angry. Whatever it is, I want people to wake up and feel something. So that's well, what I, would I feel say. it just listening to you, and certainly in in reading this incredible book, listeners. Bren McLean, know this woman because she's going to do a lot. She's already a two time winner of the South Carolina Fiction Project. She won the 2005 Fiction Fellowship from the South Carolina Arts Commission. She's She's a real writer, and she's one of us. She's a vegan. She's an animal rights proponent. She's going to be doing uh, fundraisers with different animal sanctuaries around the country. She'll be at Indra Loka. She may be doing something for Catskill Animal Sanctuary up mm-hmm. here close to me. If that happens, let me know because I'm going to come and see you. Oh, so awesome. everybody, get yourself a copy of One Good Mama Bone. And, <laughs> Thank uh, you. Help this book go far and uh, cows along with it. Thank you so much, Fred. <laughs> and if anybody has a book club and wants me to meet with them, all they do, all they have to do is say so. I know how to travel. Well, I will put everything on the um, the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net, and people can just go there and find out how to reach you. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thank you. <laughs> all the best. <laughs> Bye, Bren. Bye. And everybody else, stay with us. We are going to find out about Farm to Fable. Wouldn't you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives.
what if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. truly understand the laws of the universe and live a life based on these profound and unwavering truths, then your dream life starts today. No more waiting. No more wandering. If you're ready to let go of the striving and move into the allowing, you are ready for everyday attraction on Unity Online Radio. We study the teaching of Abraham given to us by beautiful Esther Hicks so we can release confusion for clarity, exchange struggle for serenity, and have the time of our lives today. Join host Ray Zender every Friday at noon Central Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Unity Online Radio for Everyday Attraction, where the law of attraction gets real. Listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan. I always, in this part of the show, like to tell you what is happening on the blog this week at MainStreetVegan.net. And this is a special one because it's bilingual. I think this is our third blog post that appears in English and Spanish. It comes from Enrique Velez, uh, who has taken the Main Street Vegan Academy Vegan Lifestyle uh, Coaching and Education Program. He lives in Puerto Rico. And his subject this week, and I can't believe how this dovetails with what we are about to be talking about, is, is it true that vegans feel superior to those who eat meat? Hmm. Do we? Maybe we ought to. <laughs> Read the post. And then, uh, or now, uh, listen in to something that, oh, I'm so fascinated to have the talk with this person. This is Robert Grillo. I would imagine that if you are an animal person, you are already familiar with Free From Harm, a wonderful website and organization that he founded in 2009 to expose animal agriculture's impact on non-human animals, vulnerable communities, and the environment. As a marketing communications professional for over 20 years, Grillo has worked on large food industry accounts through which he acquired a behind-the-scenes perspective on food branding and marketing. Farm to Fable is his first book. Now, listen to the subtitle, The Fictions of Our Animal-Consuming 
culture. This is not another book on why you should go vegan or how to go vegan. It's more about why isn't everybody vegan? And uh, <laughs> just in case you'd like some name dropping, the foreword is from Carol J. Adams of Sexual Politics of Meat. So we are moving in some good company today. Welcome, Robert Grillo. Oh, thank you. It's great to be with you. Well, it's wonderful to be talking with you. So give us a little background on why this book. It's so clever. It's so creative. It's one of those things that I'm thinking, why didn't 50 people think of this already? But it was yours. Mm. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I think it stems from my questioning early on several years ago. You know, what skills do I have? And, you know, what background do I have that I could leverage in order to, you know, uh, kind of uh, leverage for, for my animal advocacy? Um, and I decided that I have writing because I have a background in writing and I also have a background in marketing uh, communications. So I worked uh, within the food industry uh, advertising firms um, for the earlier part, you know, my 20s and 30s. And so I got this kind of behind-the-scenes perspective on on how food is is branded and marketed to us, and the stories and fictions that go into that, and how it works on us, how it you know how it actually works on on how on our decision making. And so that's kind of how I arrived at um, this this book. But that before the book, there was. Um, there was a presentation that I first gave in 2012 on the sub on the same subject. And so I had been giving this presentation for about three years. And then a publisher came to me and asked me if, uh, if I wanted to, to write a book. And so I said, yes. Well, that's the way <laughs> to get a publisher. Have them <laughs> <Right>. come to you. <laughs> so, so what are the major themes uh, when someone orders this fabulous little book? And, and it is, it's not very big, but oh my gosh, it's jam packed. Well, you know, I think what, what you said at the very beginning really, uh, <clears throat> kind of, uh, you know, really captures the essence of the book, which is, you know, we have many great resources as, as vegans and people aspiring ones, uh, that, you know, tell us how and why, um, you know, the, the Main Street Vegan Academy is one great example um, of a resource for people, and um, there's many others. And so, you know, we have all these great resources and arguments for, the, uh, for, for being vegan and living a vegan life, but <clears throat> I think we rarely see uh, a spotlight on the rest of society and um, why the rest of society consumes animals and thinks that they have a right to, to do so. And, and so that's, um, you know, that's kind of the essence of this book. And I think, I think um, the, the reason why we do think that we have a right is kind of a two, there's a twofold answer that the twofold part of my argument. The first is that the beliefs and values of, of, of eating animals remains largely unchallenged uh, and unexamined. And, and the second part of the answer is, is that the, uh, the fictions of popular culture continually reinforce those beliefs and values at every turn. So what do we do? We're living in the midst of this culture that 
what does the outside culture think of vegans? Are we just a, a funny little fringe group that ought to be wearing strange clothes? <laughs> uh, yeah, I hope not. I hope at this point that we've become, you know, I, I think we've, I, I'd like to think we have arrived at the main street um, and that we're, you know, front and center of people of, of very different backgrounds and walks of life and different professions and, and all that. Um, you know, I'd like to think that our, as a community, we're, we're a very diverse and eclectic group that can't be easily stereotyped. Um, but I guess it depends on who you ask. <laughs> well, my husband and I just had a little experience uh, not long before the show. We saw a tweet that Samuel L. Jackson had gone vegan. And the tweet mm-hmm. included a quote from him that he was feeling so much better and his circulation was better and, and he was more fit and all that kind of thing. And we were saying, well, gosh, that's an A-lister for the cause. So we went online to look up more. And what came across or what was dated as a later date was that he had given up his diet um, that he had learned about through the work of Dr. Robert Esselstyn because he was doing a movie and they said he was too thin. And I Mm. thought... You know, it is possible to gain weight on a vegan diet. And in fact, a lot of people say, oh, gosh, (laughs) that happened to me. And and so what do you say to somebody who, well, my husband said, so obviously he wasn't really vegan in the first place. He was just doing this as a diet. Can you address that? Well, it sounds, yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like um, here we have an ex- yet another example of the the misconceptions and the mis- misinformation that's out there uh, about, you know, how, how eating a plant-based diet affects us and, and, you know, whether it's okay for athletes. So, I mean, we, we can, you know, we've debunked those because of all the great athletes and, and, and people uh, living on a, a plant-based diet. Um, and so I think we just, I, I think the only way I know is that we continue this kind of mass education uh, program, <laughs> which is which is something that I speak a little bit to, to in the book. I talk about a thinker named Antonio Gramsci, um, who uh, lived during the, 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 Mussol- the reign of Mussolini, and he was imprisoned by Mussolini, but he's quite an inspiration uh, for me, and w- one of his big ideas was um, the way to, the social change comes from mass education of the public through consent in a democratic process, not not through a bloody revolution, but through through um, a massive education uh, program uh, that's organized and, um, has lots of facets to it and seeks to educate not just on an individual level, but also on an institutional level and political level. Well, you use a phrase, in fact, your, your title farm to fable, which I absolutely love because I've heard so many times when people want to make a, a connection with me and I'm always eager to make connection because I feel people who are trying to make change in their life are, are more likely 
uh, those who will want to make this change, this change to not eating animals. But many, many times someone has said, well, I'm not vegan, but we're farm to table. And Mm. that just always leaves me. I just, I don't know what to say to that because as an ethical vegan, I love what it does for my health, but I don't do it for my health. So why did you choose this title and what do you think of the farm to table movement? (laughs) Well, I laugh only because, you know, I had to devote a whole chapter to, to humane washing um, because it's such a, persistent and powerful set of fictions that I think we uh, that we are going to be increasingly challenged by uh, because I think that the the set of humane washing fictions is uh, the industry's way or popular culture's way of intercepting the conversation away from veganism to retain those people and those consumers that would otherwise say hey maybe we should get the plant-based chicken instead of um you know, the, the, the animal chicken flesh product. Um, it's a way for that industry to, to kind of um, save face, put a humane face uh, on their industry and, and retain the, the, you know, their, those consumers um, to, think, to, to mislead them into thinking that they can still have these products and have a clear conscience too, which of course is, is impossible. Um, so Farm to Fable was just my way of a, a play on the words um, to, to try to poke fun a bit and hope to hopefully cap- capture the attention of those kind of people that are really kind of on the fence and also those that are promoting these these fictions about um, that we can return to some kind of nostalgic time where animals were treated well before this whole industrial-scale farming system came to be, which you know, is, of course, another set of myths that, that we can go back in time or that, that even animals were treated better at, at a different time. I think there's there's a lot of debate that we could, you know, a lot we could say about the history of how we've treated animals and how it, it never really was very good from the beginning. Um, but anyway, that was my kind of thinking behind the title. Well, it's a great title. So help our listeners, help me, I can always use another line, what do you tell people to say when someone says to them, but I only buy humane animal products? Well, you know, uh, I would I would ask them, have, have you ever really thought about um, what those claims are and what they really mean? And I might, um, if they're receptive, I might offer them a few resources on the Free From Harm website which I, I'm very proud of because I think they really, um, they not only debunk the claims that the, the, the treatment is so much better, um, but they also debunk the, the, the logic um, of the humane m- movement, which is, which is flawed in many ways. But on the most obvious and basic level, the, the flawed logic is that it basically says <clears throat> it's not okay to kick a dog, but it's okay to kill the dog. Which obviously, you know, makes no sense. If it's if it's wrong to hurt, then it's certainly wrong to to take a life, um, and that's an even greater moral transgression. In every other case, except when it comes to a discussion of farmed animals, so it's it just you know the logic itself um, is is just on its very basic level quite flawed. 
I would encourage people to just look one level deeper at those claims that they're hearing and really, you know, look more closely at what it actually means to be in a free-range farm. Look at some photos. Look at, you know, read about people who have uh, investigated those farms and what, what the lives of those animals are really like. You said something so brilliant when you said this argument is like saying it's wrong to kick a dog, but it's okay to kill a dog. You took me back 30 years. My daughter was a tiny little thing, and I was going to be in an animal rights demonstration that I thought might be a little heated, and I didn't want her to come, but she insisted that she come and and bring a sign. And she wanted her sign to say, don't hurt the cows. Well, this was a humane thing about not branding calves in the face. So even some of the farmers were on the animal side for that particular issue. And I said to her, oh, honey, they're still going to kill the cows. So your sign needs to say, don't, um, yeah, don't, don't hurt the cows. And she mm. had said, well, killing hurts. Hmm. And... It was like, okay, I just got it from a three-year-old. Yeah, killing hurts, and killing does something beyond hurt. We don't even know what it does, because we don't know the secrets of life and death and why anybody is here. That's right, and there's no recovering from it. It's not like a kick in the in the stomach. It's not something you can recover from. It's, mm. it's the end. Mm. Well, that, oh, I'm going to use that dog line thank you so so very much robert now you also talk in the same chapter about the backyard hen fantasy please please debunk the backyard hen fantasy that goes all the way up to famous people on television yeah well you know when it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because that's something that's very intimate to me i've You may know that, you know, what our focus in terms of rescue is, um, specifically domestic birds and, you know, 99% chickens. Um, So we do about one rescue, uh, one or two a month. And most of these these birds are are either intentionally abandoned um, and dropped off in a forest preserve or in a, a cemetery, or um, they're roosters, sometimes they're roosters, sometimes they're hens. Um, they can be found in shelters or they can be found on, on sides of streets. Um, so they're basically abandoned uh, animals. And so for one thing, uh, many people who, who have backyard chickens never stop to think of the fact that there, had to, there was probably, a, for every hen they have, for every hen that they purchased or, or that they have, that there, there was probably a rooster there too, but that they've never seen those roosters. And there's a reason for that because the industry has no use for those roosters, as you know. And, and so, you know, the absence like you know, you talk about the absent referent, which is such a, a you know, important uh, concept in, in Carol Adams work. Um, these roosters are absent completely. Um, also uh, the hatcheries where these birds come from, you know, we, we look at, the, the setting that they're in, and we say, okay, this is a, a pretty good life for them, a pretty good environment, but we don't think about where they came from, and we also don't think about the centuries of selective breeding and the biological manipulation of these birds 
um, to force them to produce an obscene number of eggs. We don't think about all of those factors that are basically invisible to us because we've never gone into a hatchery and we don't know what these science labs are doing with these birds and how they're genetically and biologically manipulating them. But the one thing we can see, um, and that I think a lot of backyard chicken keepers will, will come to have to come to terms with, is that these birds' bodies break down very quickly. And this egg laying uh, pays a, a, a really terrible toll on their bodies. Um, we've seen all kinds of horrific things happen to, to our rescues. And I think most people will. And then they'll have to face the difficult decision do I invest the money, maybe $1,000 or more, to, to treat this poor animal that's sick or, or what? Or, you know, um, but they're going to have the same cost that they would have as caring for a dog or a cat. Yeah. Wow. And I know your story. You started out in all this because of three chickens rescued from a classroom breeding project. They were, uh, yes, a chick hatching uh, project. A friend of mine was a school teacher at one of these schools, and I impulsively adapted three of them, and I named them Doris, uh, Danita, and Ricardo. Ricardo turned out to be a rooster. and But I raised them into adulthood, and I just decided that I was going to kind of uh, relate to them as any of us would relate to our cats or dogs. I wasn't going to to have any kind of bias and or preconception about who they were or what their role was. I was just going to let them be who they were and see how they related to me. And what I discovered was part of what was so transformative to me was that they really just, you know, by virtue of being domesticated animals, I think uh, any domestic animal um, seeks to, to bond with us and is completely dependent on us for their very survival needs. So they, they easily become attached to us and form, form bonds. And that's exactly what I found with these three birds and others, of course, all of the others that we've rescued. Um, they come and want to crawl up in your lap. They want to sit by your feet. They follow you all around the house or the yard. Uh, they're very much attached um, emotionally and psychologically, and it's 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 a real treat to have that that kind of uh, awakening, I think. Oh, what a great story, and especially what a great story coming from a guy. So <laughs> we, we talked about Carol J. Adams and the sexual politics of meat and how the animal industry so mimics female exploitation in, in the human world. What about the guy thing? It's the old, you know, I work hard to put meat on the table. You know, I'm a guy. I need bacon. Where did this come from? And is there an answer to it? Yeah. Oh, there's there's some interesting research that, that has been done on this. And I think more is being done. But one of the things I tapped into was actually a, a, a big study that the University of Chicago did um, that showed how the marketing of meat um, could be used to market lots of other products, uh, male, uh, you know, male products like cars and razor blades and, and mouthwash, um, you know, all kinds of stuff, weird stuff. And that, that, it, that meat was a symbol 
uh, so much a symbol of masculinity that it could be used to market all these other products. Coupled with that, you, 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 you look at films, iconic films like Rocky. Um, and there's a famous scene where he's in a, he's in a slaughterhouse with, um, you know, animals hung upside down and carcasses basically at this point. And he's using them as a punching bag. And, you know, I don't think most people realize just, you know, what a powerful message that sends, but it's basically, you know, when you were, when we use, when we reduce an animal to just being our punching bag, this is the ultimate symbol of powerlessness um, and our power over, over other species. And uh, that, that movie, you know, movies like that, I think, um, have helped shape uh, the the kind of perspectives and you know views on masculinity that that we embrace today. Fascinating. And how about the purity question? You tackle self sufficiency as moral purity. I'm going to get a few chickens and a goat and grow some cabbages and now I'm a better person. What do you do with that? <laughs> you ask the tough questions, uh, Victoria. Um, I think that, uh, you know, that moral purity is, is a fictional device that we, we see used in several different ways. One of them, one of them is the way you're talking about where we become more self-sufficient and we become, you know, we actually take control of our food supply, and we decide to to bring our food to our to our own land, and not be dependent or become a less you know more off the grid than the average consumer. And somehow that that makes us ethically superior because we're actually doing it ourselves. Now, you know, there might be an argument to be made that hey, you know, someone who does that is is taking control, uh, and that's a good thing. It's empowering to be able to grow your own food and, and be able to take better control. We should have better control over our food system because our government doesn't, uh, certainly doesn't, the way they subsidize foods, they, they certainly don't have our best interests at heart. And the supermarkets are, are you know, a, a nightmare. So, hey, it's a great idea that, that we would consider, you know, growing our own food. But then when animals come into the mix of that, um, what happens is, is you know, they their 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 experience is becomes an absent referent again because we're so conditioned for that. Like Carol Adams would say, their experience in all this is not even considered because it's really our own egos and our own self sufficiency that becomes the 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 all important uh, thing in this. So. I, you know, I, I would, I would kind of try to get those that that group of people and that kind of you know mindset. I would try to get them to think about um, the animals' perspective more and whether it's it's something that they want or whether it's something that's even necessary um, to have animals uh, be a part of our, you know, what cons- what we consider ethical. This is interesting because it reminds me of the uh, animal clothing situation and and people who will wear fur because they want to appear rebellious or avant-garde. And so we do these things for our own purposes and our own reasons 
without any thought for the being who has far more invested in it than we do. So there seems to be a, a society-wide blindness that is, is just, I think, beginning to be healed. We are making noise out in the world. Uh, the vegan movement is not huge, but we're heard. Yeah, we're a vocal group. I think most of us, uh, not not all, but I think we're more vocal than the, the average group in society. Um, and... Uh, I think we could stand to be more. I think our success depends on growing our movement and becoming more confident voices uh, to speak with dignity and truth. Um, truth is desperately needed, um, which is something I talk a little bit about in the book. Um, the truths are the, the you know the the truth is the truth, and the facts remain the facts regardless of who our audience is, and if. If there's any testament to that, um, we can just look at Trump and our new Trump administration um, as, as a testament to that fact, that the truth and the facts don't change because um, someone doesn't decides they don't like it or doesn't want, don't want to accept them. So, Robert, how do we deal being such a small minority? We absolutely believe that we are right. And when I even use the word believe, it seems like, what is there to believe? We're talking about suffering and, and death. You don't have to believe. That's just mm-hmm. wrong. And yet, I'm very much outnumbered. You and I and most of the people listening to this program are very much outnumbered in this belief. So uh, just like uh, Enrique's blog post this week at, at Main Street Vegan, where he talks about are we superior? Because you hear that all the time. People say, oh, I knew a vegan. Oh, she was insufferable. Well, what do we do with that? I mean, I certainly believe that in this particular area, we are taking the moral high road. It's a strange position to be in. It, it is. It's a, it's a very, it's, it can be a very awkward situation. It can also be an opportunity, I suppose, because what I'm finding now is with the activism that I'm doing, um, with other, you know, involving other groups, you know how so much of uh, the resistance to Trump has rallied several causes that are that have common goals, um, have rallied those groups together in a way that's really interesting. And I found myself kind of immersed with with people of other causes. And now I'm being asked to, can I be a speaker at some of these events? Can I lead this or that? And and so now I might, you know, have an opportunity to talk about, yeah, human rights, but also other species rights and how, how this intersectional uh, nature of our, of our causes uh, are complementary and how we can bring those people in to understand, you know, yesterday I was just at a fascinating protest uh, in, at the federal building in Chicago, and it was about um, prison reform and not taking away money from schools, not building more prisons um, to to take money away from schools, and not to bring the national guard in to fight crime in Chicago, and which Trump has has threatened to do. But what was really interesting to me is that the the people that spoke here were using our the same language we use when we talk about victims that are other that are non-human animals. They're all already using that same language, and I think that they could easily connect with 
these other victims if someone actually spoke their language and brought them into the fold. And so that's what I'm hoping to do. Well, you do it eloquently. You, you speak beautifully, you write beautifully, and your website, for anyone who has not visited, do uh, treat yourself to freefromharm.org. There's all sorts of really, really helpful information there, as well as this wonderful book, Farm to Fable, The Fictions of Our Animal-Consuming Culture. So, you sound hopeful. You think that this is the way that society is moving. Yes, I do. I think it's. I think. Uh, I think it's inevitable that that we move forward, and I think there. You know, there will be steps backwards, and uh, I, I think that the the fact that we have a new administration that feels like, for many of us, feels like steps backward um, as far as some of the causes that we've advanced um, prior to that um, steps backward, but then. Ultimately, we we have to. Uh, I, I think this this is something that that is unavoidable, and that bringing uh, uh, non-human animals into our uh, moral community is is some somewhat of an inevitability. I just don't don't know how quickly it will happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's uh, that's something that you know. I I like to try to. Have a disclaimer that I'm not someone who really knows social change and who's an expert in how this all takes place. That I'm just somebody who can offer um, the I can offer an argument based on my background as a marketing communications person about the power of ideas and and beliefs in shaping what we end up doing and what we end up believe you know how we end up behaving And, Mm. and so. Um, it's limited to that. So what do you think you're going to be doing next? Well, there's talk about possibly a documentary. I've had some initial conversations with a, a filmmaker who, a young filmmaker who's incredibly passionate about the subject and the book and is really interested in a documentary. So that could be next. Oh, that would be wonderful. This is really the, the era of the documentaries for, for animal rights and veganism. I, I think that, that would be a great thing. I hope you do it. <laughs> and, you know, I, I gave a talk for Florida Voices for Animals on February 12th, 2017. I'm giving the date in case anybody wants to go to Facebook and find it. It's there on the Main Street Vegan page. Um back in February 2017, if you're listening in the far future. And I talked about the possibility of animals being the unifying force. A couple of weeks ago, when the USDA took the animal welfare uh, information off the website, uh, on MSNBC, Rachel Maddow addressed it, and on Fox Mm -hmm. News, Tucker Carlson addressed it, and they were both on the side of the animals. And mm. I thought this was stunning because I don't know that that's ever happened on any other topic. And because animals really are so innocent and so neutral, I just wonder if that could be a way that those of us who have so much difficulty crossing a great divide of culture and ideology might be able to communicate 
So I'm just looking for veganism and and respect for animals to cross aisles and borders and boundaries <laughs> and change the world. Why not? Something has to. Yeah, I think we can learn a lot, too, from, from other social movements and what's going on with something like the Indivisible Movement, where these are very targeted, grassroots, shrewd, intelligent activists, people that are helping people in their local communities um, speak to their elected officials. And we could learn something from that, becoming more politically active and also uh, speaking to um, institutions that exploit animals or that that uh, support that in some way and having a voice there, having a voice at the table on an institutional level. I think that's really, really key. I completely agree with you because we need to be the voice not just for ourselves but for these incredible animals who communicate brilliantly if somebody pays attention to them but who overall have no voice. And uh, they've got us and I hope we're up to it. I Yeah, I know that I living with birds here is, is really a constant reminder of what you're talking about oh. uh, i i have such endearing you know relationships with them and and it's just a constant reminder that they're the reason you know and all the others that i don't know uh. they're, they're really the reason for for why why i've chosen you know this is my path in life this is finally in my life i found some an outlet that that is going to be meaningful enough for me that I can see doing for the rest of, you know, the rest of my life. Wonderful. Another great story. Another great guy story. Thank you so much, Robert Grillo. Um, Everybody look for the book farm to fable, the website freefromharm.org. Our first guest, Bren McLean and her book, one good mama bone. We'll have all this, everybody's URLs and their social media and their websites and everything you could possibly want to know about them on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net, so do check that out. In the meantime, God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. truly understand the laws of the universe and live a life based on these profound and unwavering truths, then your dream life starts today. No more waiting, no more wandering. If you're ready to let go of the striving and move into the allowing, you're ready for everyday attraction on Unity Online Radio. We study the teaching of Abraham given to us by beautiful Esther Hicks so we can release confusion for clarity, exchange struggle for serenity, and have the time of our lives today. 
Join host Ray Zander every Friday at noon Central Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Unity Online Radio for Everyday Attraction, where the law of attraction gets real. Remember when you entered first grade? Did you find it hard to believe you'd ever be able to learn and do all that was expected of you? Do you remember how, through your own consistent effort and the support of your parents and teachers, you did learn the basics and went on to master more complex skills? Life is a process similar to the one we experience in school. As we move through life and attempt to expand our awareness of who we are and what life is all about, we encounter new problems, such as the schoolroom of daily living. We can approach each situation with a positive attitude. Take one step at a time and know it's only a matter of persistence before we arrive at a solution. Repeated efforts will accomplish any undertaking. This law of life is brought to you by Unity. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. We talk to the animals and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast hosted by the three of us, myself, Julie Heert, Karen Dendy-Smith, and Meredith Tollison. We will show you how to deepen your relationship with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul-level animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, and listen as part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. 